chairs to sit in to hear it. And that you have established your church physically on this earth. And you call us to gather regularly into a corporate setting to a group of people that are underneath the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word to hear that word preached. Lord, we give to that ministry. We learn underneath that ministry. It is a precious ministry of the ministry of the word. And we ask, Lord, now that you would strengthen it. For those who are here who are believers, Lord, may it encourage them and challenge and and help direct their lives to live more boldly and more devoted to you. But for those that are here who do not know Jesus, do not know him as their personal Savior, we pray that even a message that has to do with married and unmarried and widows and virgins and so forth, Lord, that they would be gripped by a need for Jesus to save them from their sins. We pray that this morning for your glory and certainly for their good, Lord. Lord, we ask that you bless the ministry around the world as well, our ministries overseas that we partner with, Lord, for we pray for our missionaries, strengthen them, Lord. May our giving continue so we can continue those ministries and expand those. We do pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Please protect them, protect those churches, those pastors, those members, Lord, that many are even gathered now. And we ask that you would give them safety. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you that no evil person will go unjudged. Those who do not know Jesus will fall under the judgment hand of Jesus someday. And we thank you that you are God who seeks revenge and we don't have to. So we thank you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 through 40, I've entitled the sermon, Contentment Through Devotion to Christ. Contentment Through Devotion to Christ. When we think about devotion to the Lord or devotion to Christ, we often think that's maybe speaking of somebody uh, extremely mature in the faith. We think maybe of someone who has had years in the Word of God or years within the church of being taught and studied, but that's not the case. When Israel was falling under the judgment of God, he sent Jeremiah to them to warn them and one last chance to turn from their sins. And Jeremiah speaks to the nation in Jeremiah 2.2 and says this, God saying this, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem saying this, thus says the Lord, Now listen to this. I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. You're following after me in the wilderness, wilderness, though there was no land not sown. Even in Israel's infancy, the Bible says that in their youthful infancy, God says they were devoted to him. Think about another verse 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I referred to this verse last week in my sermon where Paul says, I betrothed you to one husband so that Christ might present you as a pure virgin. But the next verse says this, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray, now listen to this, from the simplistic and purity of devotion to Christ. The simplicity and purity of the devotion to Christ. Being devoted to Christ 
does not mean that you have a Bible degree. (laughs) There are children to elderly who are devoted to Christ with the limited, maybe in some cases, knowledge they have, they are devoted to Jesus Christ and they believe his word. Jesus illustrates this by saying, permit the children to come to me in Mark 10. He says, don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, this this isn't a verse saying all children go to heaven. This verse says, there is an understanding of the simplistic, powerful gospel that saves people. The children don't have degrees in theology, but they believe Jesus died for them. And so, this morning, as we tackle difficult issues... You're going to see this idea of being devoted, whether single, married, widowed, divorced, whatever the case be. There is this push towards devotion to Christ in this passage. And so I asked you this morning, do you believe in God's word? Do you believe the word of God? Do you believe it literally? Do you believe that he literally speaks to us? These, these words here that in front that sit on our laps is God's word. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus died in your place? Pure and simple. Do you believe Jesus died in your place? Do you believe that God made you righteous through his son's finished work? Do you believe that you can't come on your own righteousness because that's just filthy rags, but do you believe you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ so you can stand in the presence of God forever? Simple, pure, isn't it? Do you believe that God truly loves you and has a plan for you? Do you believe that? You believe in Almighty God, creator of all things, one who holds all things in his hands. Everything that exists exists because of him. Do you believe that God loves you personally and has a plan for you? Pure and simple. And do you believe that Jesus is coming back to receive you as his own, the words of Scripture teach? To receive you as a family member. Do you believe in that? Well, if you do, this morning I want, you to cha- I want to challenge you to apply this to your singleness, your married position, your widow position, whatever, whatever relational position you have, can we apply devotion to Christ in the simplistic purity of the gospel? Well, to do that, I want to give you three thoughts and then a final word of application. Number one, free from concerns with undistracted devotion to the Lord. This is what Paul wants. This is what the Bible wants. Wants people, Christians, free from concerns with undistracted devotion to the Lord. And as you read that title behind me, do you think, is that possible? (laughs) How many distractions do you have in your life right now? I have a few. God wants us to be free of those distractions to serve the Lord, to trust him. And in his context, we are in marriage, we are in singleness, we are in divorce, we are in widows, we are in unmarried virgins, engaged in betrothal people. This is the context. And in that context, after Paul has given this powerful exposition, remember in verse 29 down through 31, 
to live in light of the return of Christ, to live in light of the imminent return of Christ, Paul now shows his pastoral concern again for singles and married. That they would be devoted to serve the Lord. Notice in verse 32 as it begins, he says, but I want you to be free from concern. This conjunction but tells us that Paul desires both single and married to live in this present age with a concern, with a, with a, a desire to, to live in such a way that the Lord may return any moment. That's the goal. And because the Christian life is determined by our new existence in Christ, our, our old life has passed away. Behold, it's all passed away. Behold, all things have become new for a Christian. Because of that, we live in, a, in what we maybe say this, an already not yet life. Meaning, God has saved me. I am ready to stand in the presence of God for eternity because of what Jesus has done. I'm dressed in his righteousness. And yet, it's not ready yet because he hasn't come back for me yet by death or by rapture. But this is how Paul wants him to live. And in that already, not yet, he wants contentment. He wants us free from anxiety and concerns or the troubles that trouble worldly people. He doesn't want you to be troubled like the pagans. (laughs) That's the idea here. He wants our marriages, our singleness, our relationships to be free from those type of concerns. Notice the you in there. It's plural. So he's speaking to all Christians, no matter what your relationship status is. And here Paul wants both married and unmarried to live this way, even though their present situations are different. Look at verse... Excuse me. In 1 Corinthians 7, there is this overwhelming context throughout it to be content in Christ. There's this push by the ascetics of of Corinth. And it's putting great pressure and great anxiety and great concerns that, that they're not spiritual enough because they're married and they enjoy intimacy. Because they're single and, and, and they need to let go of any desire to marry. There's this pressure coming from this ascetic group and it has caused great contention. And Paul wants cut, uh, people to be content in Christ. We find this all through the scriptures Peter says, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. Listen to this. Casting, akbalo, throw your cares, your worries, your anxieties on him because what? He cares for you. He is Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 6 with me. Matthew chapter 6 in the great Sermon on the Mount. Greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached. Verse 24. Matthew 6, 24. This is such an important start to this thought here. No one can serve two masters. You know why you have a lot of concerns and anxiety in your life? You might have two masters. Might be the problem. For either you will hate one, the one and love the other, and here's our word, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat and what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. 
For they do not sow nor reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more worthy than them? Verse 27, and who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? All kinds of people trying to do that. Biofreeze themselves, whatever. And why, verse 28, are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, he, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then. Concern, anxiety is the idea here. What you will eat or what you will drink what you will wear for clothes, for the pagans eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And here comes the great verse. We love this verse, don't we? We've all memorized this verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, all that stuff that we've just read about, will be added to you in a right, godly proportion as he sees fit, right? And so this is our God. He's he wants us to be not riddled with anxiety and concerns. And so Paul, as he deals with relationships, and there's probably no greater thing, at least there's two things, relationship, marriage, relationships, and money that cause great anxiety in people's life. The pharmaceuticals are making mint on those two things. But Paul does not want us to have anxiety over this. And oh, that we may learn to live in the freedom of Christ versus these concerns that gripped us. But what he's going to do here now as you look back at our text in 1 Corinthians 7 is he is going to first look at the male role. Verses 32 through 34, the beginning of 34. And then, verse 34, he's going to look at the female role. And you'll see that he, both are described equally and yet different. Right? That's what we believe about men and women. That's our stance here. God made men and women equal, husbands and wives equal, yet different, because we each have a unique way of bringing God glory. But notice in verse 32 here, it says, but I want you to be free of concerns. And then he starts into on the male here. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he, there's we, we pick up the male the masculine pronoun, how he may please the Lord. Well, notice that Paul places the unmarried man here before the unmarried woman as he voices his concerns. And I think, number one, he's just getting men to lead by example. It's probably one of the biggest problems in the church, and unfortunately, well, let me say this, in, in society, but unfortunately in the church, men fail to lead. But Paul's linking the sentence about single men with, with his cares for the things of the Lord to the preceding statement. I want you to be free from these concerns. So he's tying it back to that. He wants men, single men, to be free from concerns and anxiety of this world. But Paul also does this because he desires to uh, avoid placing a married man in a position that's, that's inferior or an unmarried person inferior to married. To married men. So he's, he's wanting to show that they're equal, they just have different gifts to honor God. Now, 
whether he works in the ministry or he's working in some other place, the Lord has placed him there. That's where God put him. That is your ministry. That's where your calling is Till God changes that calling to another job. This is where he sent you. And particularly for this unmarried man, this is where he is to be diligent and show his love for Christ and promote the cause of Christ. Now, he does this out of a sincere, genuine desire for the Lord. So the single man of verse 32, this unmarried man, is to have concern for the things of the Lord. And you say, well, you know, I, I've been serving in these other places. Well, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, he says, excel still more. See, remember, everything's coming in light of a returning Christ, this imminent return of Christ. So it seems as though sometimes in the church, as we grow older, we drift off. Or we go through times, seasons in our life where we're less involved with the serving of the Lord because the things of our life pull us away from that. Paul wants them to excel still more. Now look at verse 33 through the beginning of 34. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he will, may please his wife, and his interests are divided. Well, after mentioning the concerns of the single man, now he turns his attention to this married man, right? And this is many of us in here. And clearly both the single and the married enjoy the same freedoms in Christ, right? We're, we're equal We've been washed by the blood of Christ. We're dressed in his righteous robes. There's a, there's a standing, a position, so that no one is greater than the other here. In fact, Paul never speaks any words of disapproval concerning married or unmarried. But he wants us to live, whether single or married, be devoted to the cause of Christ. This is his goal. In reality, Paul is saying that the married man gives himself to both, now think about this, both to Christ and to the needs of his wife and children. See, he devotes his time. And, he, and he's divided in those times. So his role, think about this, husbands, uh, fathers in this building here, our role as godly leader, provider, protector of our families is very much a part of the role of a godly church member, right? This is what we do. So we're not dismissing that part of the way we serve the Lord, married men, is the way we provide and protect and lead in a godly way our families that have been given to us. In fact, Paul really jumps on hard those in Ephesus as he writes Timothy, saying this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, who are disobedient to this, but if anyone does not provide for his own, he's talking about family, especially those of, the, of his household, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul's making it clear that when he says undivided, this is not a negative, negative passage. This is realizing that us who are married have responsibilities to wife and children and family, and, and we can't fully give ourselves um, time-wise to the service of the Lord. So he's validating the biblical gift of marriage again. And doubtlessly, he understands the limits that a married man has as he serves the Lord physically. So though Paul recognizes there's a, there's a divided interest to the married man, he does not even suggest remotely disapproval of marriage. That's what the Corinth church is doing. This is what the ascetics in Corinth are doing. They're disappointed with marriage. 
In fact, they have called it sinful. But Paul sees the role very different. He sees that that part of role in this present life is not inferior to the single, one, single man who can give his whole life to the work of the ministry. So the point that I think Paul has taken is he says that both single and married are on the same level. They're viewed as equal workers in the church, but with different time restraints. You understand that? But we all should be part of this. Now look at the first, the, the verse, chapter 34, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 34, the rest of the verse. He says, but his interests are divided. That's back. That's the context of 33. Now look what he does. He turns his attention to the unmarried uh, woman. This is a divorced, widowed woman. Either or. The woman who is unmarried, and then he throws in this one, and the virgin, which he, we dealt with last week, is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Well, here it seems that Paul had in mind the widow, the divorced, the single woman, along with this virgin that is probably one who's never married and is possibly engaged. And what's clearly significant is the fact that the unmarried woman is able to give herself fully to the work of the Lord. You can see that in the verse, can't you? She's been granted freedom. She does not have the restraints, the time restraints. And so she can devote her entire time to the Lord. And we see women like this even in the Scriptures. In Romans chapter 16, verse 12, Greek trophania and trophosa, these are two women, workers in the Lord. And Pyrrhus is a, is a gentleman, beloved, but he calls them both as hard workers in the Lord. Paul had many uh, single women, we believe these were single women, and single men who had dedicated themselves to serve along the Apostle Paul, and letters get written that we still teach today. Churches got planted because singles devoted themselves to the work of the Lord. Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, he urges Iodia and Syntyche, to live in harmony with the Lord. And then he says this about them. He says, they, these girls are true companions and they share in my struggle for the cause of the gospel. See, these ladies were able to come alongside the ministry of Paul. They were companions, um, meaning there's a group of people that linked up together to, to struggle in the ministry of the gospel as you planet churches in pagan worlds. And Paul praises them for being a part of that. You know, we see this, I thought of the example of just Patty Parks. Patty Parks, for most of you who know Patty, um, she was uh, involved in our ministry for a lot of years, served here for many years, um, but God burdened her and called her to Ireland, and she serves there now. And Patty is kind of a modern-day picture of these women. And I've had great times with Patty talking about her gift of singleness that God has granted, and she sees that from God, and she now faithfully serves alongside elders of a church in Ireland, and God's using her in amazing ways. And this happens. Now, now not, again, not everybody's called. In fact, it's probably the, the fewer are called to this. But when they're called, they, they, they go after that. And, and let me add this. When we don't pursue our callings, and we pursue things of the world, even good things, jobs and finances and all those type of things that sometimes we get overburdened about, 
If you're not pursuing what God has called you, married or unmarried, you will lose your joy. Because there's going to be this tension, this tension in your life. But God wants you to serve the Lord. And notice this woman here in verse 34, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. So Paul's ascribing this beautiful pursuit of holiness of the entire person. And this has been his mantra all through 1 Corinthians, that he exhorts Christians to use their bodies to glorify God, not in immorality, right? He says your body is a temple. But here, the body is not burdened by marital status or maternal duties that a wife would have, right? A mother would have. Her spirit, the person, is now focused on serving the Lord, both mind and body, through striving by the Holy Spirit. She's, she's after the holiness of God and wanting to live that out unrestrained by time. This is what Paul's talking about. And he probably has some of these women in mind who serve alongside him. But it's important that, that this is not to say that the unmarried woman is more holy than the married woman. That's not what Paul's saying in any way. But she does have freedom to devote her time to the Lord. But our married sisters in Christ are devoted to the Lord and to their husbands and to their children, and that's the way they flush out their devotion to the Lord as well as serving within the church. We'll get to that shortly. Now, notice the latter part of verse 34. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So in a sense here, the counterpart to Paul's comment is the married man and the married woman here. The husband carries concern for leadership and protection and provision, and the married woman's devoted to her household. Those are biblical principles taught throughout Scripture. We understand those, right? So when we teach on biblical roles of husbands and wife, again, we come back to the quality of the role, yet it brings God glory in different ways. And so is the role with singleness and marriage. They're equal to God. They equally bring God glory. If you're here today and you're single, if any way the church has shown itself not to see your gift as glorifying to God or have suppressed that in some way, we're sorry. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, God says you are ultimately important to the devotion to Christ and the spread of the gospel. It's important to Him. And same with married. Sometimes I, when I was growing up in the ministry, Gina and I got married, served the Lord together... And there were times where I had opportunities to go to some pretty difficult places to share the gospel, to preach, and to train pastors and so forth. But there was a few instances I just had to say, no, I, I can't go because of her and for the children. And God raised up some single men who went in our place and were able to go into those places that were, were very difficult. So... So God is showing that there's an equality to the gift of singleness in marriage. You have to understand which one you have, and are you devoted to God in that role? Now look at verse 35 with me. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate, 
and to secure undistract devotion to the Lord. See, Paul was not putting a, a legalistic noose. Um, the word, the Greek word for restraint is the idea of noose <laughs> around somebody's neck, right? So he's not, he's not putting some legalistic noose around the neck of single Christians here. He's, he's making it clear that they're not under compulsion neither to be married or to be single. And remember, the pressure from the ascetics is coming, be single, get out of your marriage, divorce, do whatever it takes, be single because you're more spiritual if you're single. So remember, he's fighting that. But Paul advises these Christian believers here and us as well of God's word to remain as we are, and he's counseled them so that they would be spared from undue trouble and concern, right? Now, the word devotion here, he says to be devoted to the Lord. And, and notice he gives some qualifying statements in verse 35, but to promote what is appropriate, to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. This word devotion literally means to come alongside, to be aside someone or something. It carries the idea of a constant attendant to someone. Ooh, pretty powerful word, isn't it? To be a constant attendant to the things of God. Both single and married are supposed to be doing that. We're constantly attending to the things of God, whether we're in the home as a, as a homemaker or one who has care of the management of the home or a, a man who maybe is providing and leading and protecting and providing in that role, whatever that role is, or the single person who's devoted themselves to the Lord, they are to come alongside, be an attentive, att attendant to the things of the Lord. Now, the real danger is not to take this point seriously. Meaning, we fail, if we fail to live out our lives in this present age, whether married or single, as those who know that the time is short in verse 29, right? In verse 30 says that this world's passing away, 31, excuse me. And we fail to live in light of a coming Savior, and we let the world's concerns grip us, thus losing our joy for the fulfillment of our calling of serving the Lord in these different roles, oh, what a loss that will be. You don't, I, I, I don't know, am I right on this? Do you want to get to heaven and go, man, I wish I would have done more? I think we'll probably all say that at some level. But, but now, see, this isn't legalism and all this. is just Christ died for me. He's got a plan for me. He's coming back for me. He has, a, he has an eternal plan for me. I'm his servant here. We were just praying in our, in our elders before we came in here and just begging God to keep us and remind us as elders that we're bond servants and we, we work for the master. We work for the Lord Jesus Christ who's the head of the church. And we want to fulfill that role well as elders and pastors. What's it going to be like when you step into heaven See, I don't want to get there and realize that we failed in so many ways. Now, certainly, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3 that there's people who come in by fire. And it seems to be that God saves people who, who don't do much for him at times. But that's not the mantra of the Scriptures, right? The Scriptures teach us to serve the Lord with gladness, Right? To see needs and meet them, to, to stack chairs or help with chairs or to teach children or to call on the sick or to, 
to evangelize the lost or the myriad of ministries we have in this church, right? He calls us to do those things. Not because we have to, but because we get to, so God grants us freedom. And listen, he grants you freedom both in marriage and in singleness to shake off the anxieties of the world. You can trust him. He loves you. Remember, we made that statement to start out. You said, I watched a lot of your heads. You nodded and you believed he loved you. Why would he abandon you financially? Why would he abandon you if he loves you? So we now have this freedom in Christ to live out our singleness, to live out our marriages unhampered by the things of this world by living for Jesus now. So whether you're called to be single or married, we're all to live unrestrained in our devotion to the Lord. One more thought on this word restrained. Um, the Roman Catholic Church has put a noose around their people's neck. The Roman Catholic Church for years and years has misinterpreted the scriptures here and they insisted that their clergy be celibate even though they may not have that gift. And this has caused atrocious problems from the abuse of children to abuse of women to all kinds of things have gone on. I mean, let's, let's be clear. The Bible is saying here that there is not a greater role of singleness or marriage. Both are to be devoted to the Lord. But evangelical churches have not been on their best behavior at times either. Some have kept singles from leadership. I've seen bylaws where a single man can't be an elder because they believe that 1 Timothy 3 is saying that he has to be married, but that's not what it's saying. If he has a wife, he's supposed to be above reproach. They've held down leadership. They've, also, I think the most difficult thing that the evangelical church has done is they've developed a culture of underusing, underusing singles and developed a demeanor of sadness towards them. Am I, am I right here? I talked to too many singles who have appreciated this series. And sometimes in the evangelical world, we've created, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry for you. I hope God brings you a husband. What if they've been given the gift of singleness? What did you just do to them? Oh, she's, you know, or he's... Uh, The gift of singleness frees a person to serve the Lord with everything they have. And brother and sister, if you're in here and you're single, God's calling you to that. Just like he calls those of us who are married to be devoted to the Lord with everything we got, why we care for the homes and protection and lead and all the things that he gives to married couples as well. This is God's goal. And look, the answer lies in this, that we are becoming eschatological people. Eschatology is the doctrine of the return of Christ, the end times, right? And so eschatological people are people who live in light of the coming of Christ, and that changes your singleness, and it should change your married life as well. Amen? i got to get going. Thought two. Yikes. A godly father's opportunity to help his daughter fulfill the will of God. Verse 36. 
But if a man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly towards his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, and if, she, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. Well, Paul's consistent instruction throughout this chapter has been that if a person who is free to marry decides to marry, it's not sin, right? However, Paul is also consistently instructed that those who have the gift of freedom from marriage remain biblically moral. Singles not living in immorality like what's happening in Corinth and happens today in our world, but they should be obedient in their, obedient in their gift of celibacy here. Now, this leads to the question of whether verse 36 through 38 are talking about a man betrothed to a virgin or engaged to an unmarried virgin, or it's talking about the father's authority here. And I studied a long time on this one to make to land where I believe that I, I believe the Bible is teaching here. And after my long study and arduous work and seeing so many different views on this, I do believe this is speaking about a father's authority. But there's to understand this, you can't get away from the context that these ascetics are putting pressure on fathers to make vows that their girls will not marry. And so now we have a problem. We have somebody trying to live out a, a vow of somebody else's, not the Lord's. And so Paul's beginning to explain this. So the reason I believe that it's not speaking about a man who's betrothed to a virgin is that it promotes what's happening in many churches. Immorality is driving marriage. And I'll bear with me and hang on and send your letters to one of the other elders. <laughs> Too many times the church, because um, a gal got pregnant out of wedlock or, or have been involved with immorality, that we put them together and say, oh, let's marry them. And this is the verse they've used. Because two people fall into sin does not mean God designed them to be together. May have. And it'll take lots of counseling, lots of confession and repentance and working through those things. And maybe he has. And maybe some in this room can say that was me. But because two people fall in sin does not mean we automatically put them together. We may be creating a very difficult, lifelong problem. And in most cases, the divorce rate is huge in those cases. So I don't think that this is what this verse is talking about because Paul spent too much time teaching against the sinfulness of immorality and using your body in a wrong way. And then if we just look at the times, right? The New, New Testament times, most marriages were still arranged at this point. In the Jewish culture, um, particularly Jewish culture, the fathers had a dominant role in who their children married. And even in the pagan world, the general custom among the most ancient societies around this time was that the fathers chose the uh, husband for the bride, for their daughters. As you read about Roman rule and as they began to fail, many of the historians point back to this, that fathers gave up on um, picking out their sons for their, their son-in-laws, and then children uh, came out from a, their parental role, and they point back to the, the, the crash of the Roman society because of those things. But when it came to the church in Corinth, there's several factors here that were creating hardships between fathers and daughters, and 
And doubtlessly, Paul's responding. This is part of the letter, right? They, they wrote him with these issues that they had, so Paul's responding to their comments. First, there's a cultural issue that we just spoken about, arranged marriages governed by the oversight of the father. But it's the second problem, and I think this is what he's addressing. These ascetic group within Corinth are pushing their legalistic and even somewhat agnostic view to remain single in order to gain spiritual superiority. So now you have these daughters of Corinth, of these members, they've become aged to marry. They now have desires to be married. They want the intimacy and all that comes with it. But their father made a vow. And they've been persuaded to make these vows by these ascetics because they told them, your daughter will be more spiritual if you make this vow for her. You can see where this has gone in many religions, right? Now, these vows most likely consisted of a father, uh, a daughter remaining single in order to be more devoted. But the question is, can the father change his position? And this is what Paul's after without sinning. If someone made a vow for someone else, was it a sin to break that vow? Now, notice this word acting unbecomingly. Acting unbecomingly in verse 36. Or your Bible would say not behaving properly. It's only used twice in the New Testament. The other use is in 1 Corinthians 13. The love chapter, verse 5. Love does not act unbecomingly. Many extra biblical materials, the word is spoken of um, immorality. So some think, and that's why they go back to some think that this man who's betrothed to this virgin, he's been acting unbecomingly, so we should have them marry. But that's not how the word is used all the time. In fact, in many places, it carries the idea of um, acting ashamed, or you've made a decision that has brought shame. So it's very possible that the Apostle Paul is pointing to the shameful predicament that fathers have got themselves in with a daughter who does not have the gift of singleness. <laughs> and you can imagine the, te- the tension in that room. <laughs> You're going to be single. I don't want to be single. I made a vow. I don't care about your vow. <laughs> I want to be married and have children. <laughs> That's some tension, isn't it? And it's unbecoming to God's plan for marriage, right? And so I believe Paul is remaining consistent as he reminds the reader that the unmarried who are free to marry, and, and they're, they're not under restraints, and they don't commit sin by marrying, verse 28. So Paul's instructing the fathers that if they made a vow, that it's not sinful to change their mind here. And though his intentions doubtlessly were good or maybe persuaded by these ascetics, his daughter is not able, and, and if his daughter's not able or inclined to take on father's vow, she's free to marry. Notice verse, end of verse 36. And if it must be so, let them do what he wishes he does not sin, let her marry. So this indicates that she really has the gift of marriage, and the father should allow her and not restrain her by external pressures. Look at verse 37. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. Well, in other words, if the father has a good and pure motives and stands on his convictions, now now here's the key here, it is not under constraint from his daughter that she says, Dad, no, 
if he's not under that constraint of a daughter's change of mind, he should proceed in directing his daughter towards the gift of singleness in order she can be devoted to the Lord. So he says, look, if you change your mind, you made this vow through this ascetic pressure, and, and she really does have the gift of marriage, you should let her marry. But if she does not have that gift and she's not pressuring you to change your mind, you should stand on that. So he's helping these fathers make this decision to follow the Lord and him himself be devoted. So I believe Paul's encouraging the fathers to stay steadfast to his vow. And Paul doesn't want his da- the, the daughters to be persuaded to be married for peer pressure. So maybe, he, maybe he's, I think how we would look at this is we would say that a dad has conviction that she should marry for the right reason, not because the rest of the girls are doing it, Right? So he stands on that conviction, sweetheart, if God is calling you to marriage, I will stand with you. I will give you away. I'll let you come out from under my authority, under the authority of her husband. But if you're marrying for the wrong reasons, we need to stand on the biblical principle of the gift of singleness. This is what he is after. And I think this is a father who loves his daughter enough to help her discern what her gift is. And you dads out here that have young ladies and, or have already given away daughters, these are important principles. You are in charge of the spiritual oversight of that home, and so these principles should be taught at an early age. And then you can help your daughters make wise choices. And notice that the Bible says, if he does this, he does well. Now look at verse 38. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Well, here Paul brings the argument together using these preceding verses for a conclusion. He says on one hand, he's agreeing and disagreeing with the Corinth church. He, he, he prefers celibacy. He prefers the freedom of singleness to be devoted to the Lord. And you see his pastoral and um, just care in all of this. But on the other hand, Paul completely rejects the Corinth legalistic counsel of that they must remain single, and he affirms marriage God's way. And so to the single, Paul says, the choice is not between right and wrong, the choice is between good and better. That's what he's saying there. Remember in verse 7, he said, I wish that all men were as I. However, each one has his own gift from the Lord, one in this manner and one in that. And so he affirms those things. Third point. A widow's freedom to remarry and Paul's assistance of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 39 with me. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Well, here Paul reaffirms the marriage bond is, is valid. Um, and, it's, and it's valid for a wife as long as her husband is alive and the bond is equal for the man as for the wife, right? Um, he's just using the wife example here. Paul is making it crystal clear that the commitment to marriage is not for a moment, but it's for life. And we have a few engaged people in here, or some that want to be. When you step into that and you slip rings on each other's finger, this is for life. Not any other reason. Today, there's a survey, today's times, there was a survey I read not too long ago that interviewed single people And they said this, the common response was, I know I'll go through at least one, maybe two divorces till I find the right person. That's the pagan world. 
And think about all the hurt and brokenness in life and families that comes with that. But, but you know, I'm trying to find my soulmate. But not for the Bible, not for the Christian, not, not what the Bible teaches. And I think Paul's leaning on the words of the Lord Jesus Christ here, which would have been written before this, Matthew 19, verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, whatever the Lord has joined together, let no man separate. And I think that's what he's leaning on here. So death alone properly separates the spouse and causes her to be free. And the bond of marriage is now done only through death. But it is clear that God is against divorce, though he consents for it through adultery and abandonment. We've worked through those issues in these earlier messages. But notice it says, if her husband is dead, she is free to marry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Paul places no restrictions on the widow. In fact, Paul writes to Timothy and urges young widows to, to marry in the Ephesus church, uh, 1 Timothy 5.14, I want younger widows to marry, to bear children, to keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. He knows the struggle with a younger uh, wife loses her husband. And there's some cases, and just a note here just flashed into my mind. We get into um, to Luke chapter 2, you find the prophetess Annas, uh, Anna, who's in the temple. She, the Bible says she was married seven years, and then her husband died, and then she continued on. I think it says maybe her age there. And she served the Lord, fasting day and night and praying day and night. And so some widows choose to not marry. But the ascetic group within Corinth is calling for everything to be stopped. No more marriage. All marriage is immorality, but not Paul. And I love what Paul says. Notice he asserts this to widows that they're free to marry, but look at this. They can enjoy all the benefits of marriage, all the intimacy, all of those things to remarry as long as her future husband is a believer. You see that in the text? Always holding to the biblical principle of equally yoked. Unbelievers don't marry, excuse me, believers don't marry unbelievers. And we've been through that as well. Now look at verse 40 in our final verse here. But in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is. He's still speaking. The context is still to widows here. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Well, obviously, Apostle Paul believes that singleness makes one more happy. This is his position, right? But in the same verse, he seems to recognize some of the things that go on, right? Because he allows for marriage. He, he understands the moments of grief. And some of you widows in here can speak to this way better than I can. Moments of grief, loneliness, the hardship that widows often go through in singles. And, and think about if you remarry, you walk into the hardship of walking into somebody else's family now. And there's so many unforeseen difficulties in that life. But, but Paul says... Though it's his opinion to remain single, Paul makes it clear that a widow can have a biblical second marriage if done according to the principles of God. Finally, he says, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Well, Paul here is speaking through his apostolic authority. And I just want to make a real quick note here that there are no more apostles, no matter what's going on down the street. There are no more apostles. And so this is powerful authority that Paul is standing on here. 
and he expresses his humble confidence that the Spirit of God has empowered him and dwells within him. But you can't help but see some little bit of inspired sarcasm here because doubtlessly the Corinth church is saying, well, we have the Spirit and you don't. <laughs> oh, wait a minute here. He says, I have it. And so when Paul gives a direct command from the Lord, he expects obedience from the believer. But when he offers his own opinion, remember he's experienced the power of the Holy Spirit and his advice, even as a personal opinion, is backed by the authority of the Scriptures. So there are those who come to this text, and i got to quickly get, get uh, one more quick point here. But those who look at this text often say, oh, well, we only obey the things the Lord says. That's just Paul's opinion. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This has inspired every word of it. Every word. And it belongs to the Lord. Last thought, and this is more of an application here. How do we find contentment in our gifts of singleness and marriage? Paul in Philippians 4.11 said, Not that I speak from want, but I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Content whatever. Contentment, can it be found? Can you, this morning, let me challenge us together, can you truly say today you are devoted to Christ and you are content? Can you say that? And you say, Scott, there's times I'm content and there's times my spouse frustrates me and, and there's times we don't, I know we don't serve the Lord like we should or, or maybe you're single here today and you're frustrated that God hasn't given you a spouse yet and you're, you're trying to remain pure and holy in your, in your divide for the Lord, but you struggle in those things. Well, I just wrote down a few things that maybe that would encourage you and help all of us as singles or married. First of all, I just wrote down the simple thing. Remember I was talking about the, that it's simplistic and pure devotion to the Lord. So this isn't, this isn't seminary level here. This is just pure and simplistic. Number one, Trust God. It's just that simple. Ask God for a trusting heart. And many in this room, maybe in counseling or needing to get in counseling or going through struggles or whatever it is, do you have a trusting heart? Do you trust God? Do you believe in His Word? Proverbs 3, 5 and following says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not, what? Lean on your... Man, that gets us in a lot of problems, doesn't it? In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. See, some are in some very crooked paths because they're bouncing off world philosophies and they're doing this. God comes along, and when we trust him, when we say to God, help me trust you, believe your word, he straightens out what we're supposed to be doing instead of constantly rationalize and arguing with God of what we think we should be doing. Trust God. And I promise you, contentment will be a silent spirit before you. It'll... it'll It'll silence your worries and concerns. That's what content, when you know you're content. But contentment is also has a cheerful spirit to it, accepts the, the will of God. Contentment has a thanksgiving to it for whatever relationship God has given you at this point. And, and contentment's not bound to circumstances because you trust God. Whatever you're in, and contentment patiently waits for God's providence. The second thing is, 
If you want contentment, have a teachable mindset. Are you teachable? Are you always arguing? Are you always in tension with somebody's spouse or someone else? Uh, Do you disagree with the preaching all the time or the word of God or whatever it is? Oh, you're never going to find contentment. Because you think your way is better. But the Bible says, delight in the wisdom of God. Colossians 3, 16 and following says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Look what comes from it. Wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with thanksgiving in our heart. One of the translations says, making melody in your heart. See, teachable people find great thanksgiving and joy. And that makes them content, right? And delighting in the word of God, delighting in his direction makes you content. Third, do you have a sacrificial life? You want contentment and you never sacrifice? You ain't going to get it. Because if we don't sacrifice, that means we're always thinking about ourselves. We give maybe a little portion, very, very small portion to the church. It's probably the last on our bills instead of the first. We, we don't think about the needs of others because we're so consumed with our own problems. You want contentment? Live sacrificially. See needs and meet them because of Jesus. Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, as he summons the crowd and his disciples to him, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life must lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. We've got to die to self, brothers and sisters. It's the biggest challenge we have when we wake up in the morning, isn't it? Self just goes, hey, I'm here. What are we doing for me today? (laughs) Right? Contentment comes when we settle to suffer. Okay, Lord, I've asked you to take this away. I've asked you to fix this, but you have not. I know you love me. I know you have a plan for me. So I will settle to suffer because you suffered for me. And that might be your marriage. And that might be your singleness. But you're settled to suffer. Contentment leads us through to the acceptance of God's plan for our role. God let some medical difficulty into your life. You went into the doctors and you heard the dreaded word, see, cancer. See, are you willing to say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I accept it. Help me be devoted to you. And finally, if you want a contented life, have a heavenly hope. Believe that God truly loves you and he has an eternal plan for you, an eternal plan. If you don't have a heavenly hope, if you believe this is it, this is what we do here, this is all we get, you got troubles. The Bible says in Philippians 3 that many people talk that way. And Paul says weepingly, he tells you that there's enemies of the cross, and their end is destruction, their God is their appetite, they glory in shame, and they have a mindset of earthly things. But then he says, not for the citizen of heaven. These are the ones with heavenly hope. They eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who they know will transform their body of our humble estate and conform it into the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject everything to himself. That's heavenly hope. And many of us 
may linger longer on this earth than we want to. <laughs> but do we have a heavenly hope? And if so, do you apply that on Monday morning? We're pretty good here on Sunday mornings, aren't we? Go get them, Scott. <laughs> but what about tomorrow? Mondays are hard on preachers. It's the day I lay in bed and think about how poorly I executed the perfect word of God. And I have to remind myself, God's spirit is greater than Scott in every way. And I have to remind myself of places where I hurt, where I'm weak in. You do too. And you've got to accept what God has for you and remember he has something greater. He's maturing us, bringing us more into the example, the image, and transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Are you part of that process? Father, thank you for this time in the Word. We're overwhelmed with your love for us. And we're also overwhelmed with our lack of contentment with what you've chosen for us. God, I pray that you would help us, each and every one of us, to be content in Jesus. Whether we're single or married, whether we've gone through a divorce, maybe whether we're, we're remarried, maybe we're outside of God's will in some of these areas. May we get right with you, God. May we confess what was wrong and repent of those things and turn from them and, and plead for your grace, Lord, to walk with you and be devoted and find contentment in our devotion to you, Lord. Help us, we're weak, um, we're but dust, Lord. But you love to make beauty out of ashes. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.